You're listening to Mission Lab. Mission Lab. From our living new man, Ben Here's our parents, Sean and Camille Brace. Hola, everybody. This is episode 56 of Mission Lab. And uh, we must apologize because our streak came to an end. We had a good run. 55 episodes, 55 weeks in a row of never missing. And then things got out of hand last week and we were unable to produce an episode we could share and so we are doing penance and flogging ourselves and uh, just terribly conflicted about all of it. Well, we're not really doing all those things, but we we do apologize. Hopefully we didn't lose like 90% of our audience thinking that we folded up shop. But uh, there was a number of circumstances that led to that. We had an interview all set, and then the person that we did it with said, hey, let's do that again, and we haven't been able to do it again. So anyway, to make a long story short, here we are. We missed a week, but we're back with episode 56, and it is called Has God Left the Building? As you no doubt already know, because you've seen the title in your podcast um, app or however you listen to this podcast. Actually, it's just me today, by the way. My apologies. We're kind of doing this again for the second time in a few episodes. Um, That's because this is going to be more of like what Rob Bell likes to call in his podcast a sermon. I have a sermon up my sleeve for you today. I hope you will not tune me out. But it's something that is something I've been thinking a lot about. And uh, I'm not saying I have all the answers to this particular question, nor am I the final word on it, and I'm open to correction. So if you have a differing opinion than I do on this, I would love to hear it. If you have the same opinion as I do on this, I would also love to hear it. But um, yeah, so this one is called, Has God Left the Building? And I think... This is a very significant question when it comes to our ecclesiology, that is our church practice and being and policies and way of organizing ourselves, and our missiology, that is the way we do mission, how we think of it. Um, And so... Yeah, the question is kind of stemming from a lot of different angles and and factors and variables. Um, Just to name a few, uh, right now our church, and we're still going to be planning to kind of unpack this a little bit more as we're going forward, is um, restarting our church here in Bangor. We are in the process of trying to restart it. And uh, some of the conversation we've been having recently is about um, our Sabbath morning worship gathering and what that might look like. And some of us are, well, we've, we've, um, we have uh, kind of voted to move towards a more relational community type uh, service where there's more casual conversation and fellowship. And that... That is, um, that's a little hard for some of us, and I don't understand how that that attitude is. And uh, you know, some of us, including myself, we have history with thinking that there is something unique and sacred about that space called the sanctuary in the church building, and we think it has. Um, more of God's presence. It is more sacred than places outside of that room. And so, you know, there's been some discussion about that. There is, uh, I was at a meeting recently where our regional uh, leaders for our particular denomination were talking about this church planting initiative that, that we've started around the northern New England states, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. And it's going to be... Um, it's going to be largely uh, small group, home group type stuff, and there was some uh, response from some of the 
lay people, if you will, and sort of troubled by this idea. And, you know, we need to have church buildings. And so, yeah, so there's just a lot of factors going in. And uh, kind of, you know, the, the overarching question is, does sacred space exist? Is there such a thing as holy space? Um, is there a place that resides in a building known as a church where there's a special room and God's presence is there to a greater degree than other parts of that building. And so, uh, yeah, this is a very important question. I will say this might be a long episode. You already know that it will or won't be based upon the fact that you have seen how long it is. I don't know. So as I speak, I'm not sure, but there's going to be a lot of material covered, a lot of biblical exposition. So I hope you will stick with me and you will, um, you know, not zone out or tune out or turn it off or fast. Well, maybe you can listen to it in like two times the speed. I know you can do that in podcast uh, app services. So anyway, um, yeah. Do we, first of all, do we need specific buildings to worship in? Like, places that are devoted to sacred space. Um, do we uh, think that there is such a thing as sacred space? Like, is there some specific places on earth that are more holy than other places? Um, certainly a lot of religions have this perspective, whether it's Islam, whether it's Judaism, whether it's, I haven't studied it extensively, but Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, uh, are there places that are more sacred than other places? Is God uh, more present in some places than other places just by virtue of those places being set aside for him to reside? Uh, and how does this affect our um, our posture as church people and as those who are being missional? Uh, I'll also say that I did hear a rumor recently that was much to my surprise, that somebody felt that I was trying to do away with our building and saying the ultimate goal is to go to home churches and, uh, and you know, get sell our building. And that was actually quite a surprise to me because I had never, ever expressed that to anybody. And I am here to unequivocally declare that that is not my goal with my particular congregation. 100%. I'm not... Uh, equivocating at all. This is just completely not on my radar. Um, now, if somebody were to suggest, hey, let's sell our building and let's meet in homes, I certainly would not uh, put up too much of a fuss. I would say probably, well, let's slow down, hold it just a second. Let's think about this some more. But um, anyway, I'm not, that's not my goal, nor is it uh, a burden of mine to say that could never happen. So with all this said, the question is, has God left the building? Is there sacred space? Do we need to have devoted sacred, you know, space that is devoted to worship only, so-called worship? I'm putting that in air quotes if you could see me, because that's a whole other question. What is worship? Uh, but anyway, that's uh, that's a topic for another day. But do we need to have specific space devoted for the worship of God is he confined to sacred space or, or space that is, uh, that is set aside for him? And more, most importantly, what does Scripture say? So with all that introduction, that's the intro to my sermon, if you will. Uh, here is what I'd like to share with you from Scripture. And this is, again, this is, I'm, I'm working through this. And uh, you, you are free to correct me and write in and tell me I'm a heretic. Um, but uh, anyway, that is not my intention to be a heretic, of course. But with all I said, so let's think about this. So number one, let's, let's set this kind of these bookends, scriptural bookends, all right? I'm going to be referencing the Bible a lot, which is, I hope, cool in your uh, estimation. But let's, let's look at these scriptural bookends. Number one, Genesis. Guess what? There is no temple. In the Garden of Eden, there's no devoted space for the divine. There's no specific house that is built, no specific room. There is simply Adam and Eve in the presence of God when he comes and visits them. So in the beginning, no sacred space. 
Guess what? You go to the end of scripture. You go to Revelation. Guess what? No sacred space, no temple. In fact, Revelation 21, 22 specifically says that in the new creation, the recreation, there was no temple there. In fact, God himself is the temple. So we see those two bookends, Genesis, Revelation, no temple, no sacred space. God's presence himself, you know, God himself is that sacred space. And so wherever he is, there uh, we encounter the divine, of course. So again, that's just the, that's just the kind of the bookends there. We see that in scripture, Genesis, no sacred space, no temples. Revelation, no sacred spaces, no temples. Okay, so let's go from there. Um, between Adam and Moses, going back, scripture, we're going to kind of give a, a little bit of a broad overview here. Again, no s- temples in Genesis, no temples in Revelation. Are you with me so far? Yeah, okay, cool. So after Genesis, we go from Adam all the way to Moses. No temple, no sanctuary, no sacred spaces. Okay, Uh, In fact, when you come to Exodus chapter 19, it's very fascinating. Uh, God seems to want to have a face-to-face relationship with his people Israel. So Israel rises on the scene, and the people don't want to have that. They, They actually ask Moses to go and be a mediator, a go between, if you will, between God and themselves, because they are afraid of God for whatever reason. And again, we could, you know, go off on these side streets all day, but um, Israel is too fearful to 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 be in God's presence themselves. And so they say, Moses, hey, you go talk to God, and then you hear whatever he says, and you have him come back to us, and then you tell us what God said. So, um, there's this, yeah, so there's this interesting dynamic. And out of that, two things emerge. Um, one, a priesthood emerges. And that's what a priesthood is, is set up for. It is to be a go-between God and other creatures. And so the priesthood stands between God and his people. So then we have the Levites uh, headed by Aaron. And Aaron, of course, was the most important priest, and he went into God's presence uh, and ministered there. So out of that comes the priesthood, and out of that in Exodus 25, God says, you know what? I want to still be with my people. They won't come to me. They're afraid of me, so I'm going to go to them, but I'm going to have to have, again, a go-between, a mediation between me and them, and so I need this tent that I'm going to have them build and set up, and I'm going to dwell there in that tent so that I can be with them. So God God wants to be with his people. He wants to have communion with them. He wants to fellowship with them. And so he has them build this, this roving tent that can move around with the Israelites wherever they go. And God's presence is there with them via this tent. So we see that, again, happen in Exodus 25. And then for the next 500 years, 500 years, um, God is moved around in this tent, if you will, uh, with the Israelites wherever they go. And he goes from place to place, and he's there with his people through this, this process, through this mediator, if you will, the, temp, the, uh, the sanctuary, the roaming, the roving tent. Uh, so, but then along comes King David, and uh, he you know, does mighty things for God. He, he's a great warrior for God. He loves God. He, he uh, is you know, somebody who is uh, promised all these wonderful blessings by God. He's kind of like a, uh, a foreshadowing of, of this other king that's going to come along, and that king, of course, would be Jesus. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, something really fascinating happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, David all of a sudden gets inspired, and he goes to Nathan the prophet, his, his, his dude Nathan, his buddy Nathan, and he says, you know what I'm going to do, Nathan? Nathan was you know, a man who was connected to God. He said, I'm going to build God a house. And so Nathan's like, yeah, man, that sounds like a great idea. Go for it. You know, God be with you. 
So, you know, Nathan gives him the green light and then Nathan has a dream and it's a dream from God. It's a vision from God. And God says to Nathan, hey, yo, Nathan, I want you to tell this to David. He said, you know what? David has said to me that he would build me a house. But basically what God says, and I'm paraphrasing uh, a little bit here, God says to David through Nathan, he says to him, hey, David, who told you to build me a house? He said, where did, where did you get this idea? He says, uh, in all the years that I was with Israel, I traveled through the wilderness with them. I went into the promised land with them. I went, uh, you know, uh, with the different, uh, you know, with you, everywhere you went, I've gone, he, he says. He goes, what, at what point did I ask anyone to build me a house? There was, there was not a point in time when I asked anyone to build me a house. In all the years that I went around with, with, with Israel, I never once asked anyone to build me a house. And again, he said to David, you know, I went with you wherever you were. Like, I didn't ask you to stop and, 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 and put up, you know, set up a, a, a building there for me. And then he says something that is absolutely awesome. He says, again, this is Second Samuel chapter 7. He goes, not, you know, and I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing. He said, not only did I not ask you to build me a house, he said, I'm actually going to build you a house. So check this out. God's like, no, no, hold on. Time out here, David. I'm not going, I, I, don't, I don't need you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And then he goes on to explain this. Check this out. He actually says that the house that he is going to build David was not a house of brick and mortar, of stone and gold. He says, I'm actually going to build you a relational social, familial, did I say that word, right? Family house. Basically what he's saying is the house of David, your bloodline, your seed is going to be your house. And he says, I am going to establish your bloodline forever and ever and ever. And that will be your house. Now he actually, you know, uh, speaks of how through his bloodline, um, his son, David's son, which would be Solomon, was going to rise up. And he says, so long as Solomon is faithful to me, I'll be with him. And he says, Solomon, yeah, he'll build me a house. But that's not really God's focus here. Because interestingly, later on in the book, the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews shows us that what God is saying here is he is actually pointing to the Messiah when he talks about the seed, and when he talks about establishing David's house forever, he's actually talking about the Messiah because Hebrews quotes this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 2, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. This well-known line is used where, where uh, Hebrews quotes it, it says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. So Again, this this is used in Hebrews to validate the divinity of Jesus and to show that he was superior to all the angels because uh, he was he was one who was in God's favor. And so, what uh, what God is saying to to David here in Second Samuel chapter seven is really the thing I'm I'm really interested in. I'm not really all that interested in being confined to a house. I want to be manifested through a people. Now that's primarily going to come through my, you know, your seed, which is going to end up being Jesus, and he is going to be the ultimate temple, but my people who take on Jesus name will be established as my house. So don't miss that. I mean, that's that's an incredible incredibly important idea. What God was interested in from the beginning was having a people that manifested his glory, not a building, okay? So, all this is to say is that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David wants to build God a house, God's like, no, 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 what I'm more, more concerned with is a people that will manifest my glory, and I'm going to rise up, I'm going to, I'm going to raise up a person 
who will be the ultimate reflection of my glory. And that person, of course, was Jesus. So it's no wonder that when the Gospels come around and John announces the birth of Jesus, he actually uses a specific phrase that points us to this reality that Jesus would be the temple. So John chapter 1, verse 14 Uh, In a passage that we know very well, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for uh, dwelt in the original language actually literally was the word tabernacle. And that word tabernacle, of course, is one of the words that is used to to, uh, the title of the sanctuary temple tabernacle in the Old Testament. So John announces that Jesus comes essentially as the new, better tabernacle, the new, better sanctuary, the new, better temple. Uh, And this theme picks up, and this is actually a theme that John is very interested in throughout his Gospels, as uh, throughout his Gospel, as he points to Jesus being the new temple, being the better temple, being the better sanctuary. Uh, Just a next chapter later, John chapter 2, Jesus... Uh, a well-known line that really puzzled the audience to whom he was speaking. He said, I'm going to destroy this temple. He was looking at the temple in Jerusalem that, that was known as Herod's temple. And he said, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days raise it up again. And the people there are like, are you kidding me? Like, how's he going to do that? And this temple took uh, decades to build and you're going to raise it up in three days. But John very, very clearly points out that he wasn't talking about that temple, the Herod's temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. So Jesus, again, is transferring the focus from earthly, man-made, built temple to himself as the temple. And he's trying to point to greater reality. Interestingly, just two chapters later, Uh, In John chapter 4, again, I hope you're still with me. You're with me, guys? But in John chapter 4, can you say amen? I can't hear you, but I trust you're saying it. Uh, In John chapter 4, Jesus finds himself in Samaria. And, you know, there's a long, long history with Samaria that we could unpack. But he's there in Samaria. The Samaritans were just... uh, deplorable in the minds of the Jews. They were like their stepbrothers that they despised, and they didn't believe that they truly had uh, the worship of God. You know, they weren't they weren't worshiping God. Uh, the Samaritans believed that they were really the chosen ones, and uh, Jesus finds himself talking to a Samaritan woman. Now, again, there's all sorts of things we could say about this, But um, to make a long story short, there was an argument between the Samaritans and the Jews who had the right place to worship. Was it Mount Gerizim, which is where the Samaritans worshipped? They believed that Isaac, when Abraham in uh, the book of Genesis, when when Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice him, he took him to Mount Gerizim. And so they worshipped God on Mount Gerizim. Um, When, uh, of course, the Jews believed that Moses, sorry, not Moses, Abraham brought Isaac to the place called Mount Moriah, which is where the Temple Mount was in Jerusalem. And so there's this argument, okay, who has the right mountain to worship worship on? Is it Mount Gerizim or is it Mount Moriah? And so Jesus is there talking to the Samaritan woman and he's having this conversation with her. And, you know, he asks her all sorts of other things. But among those things, she kind of kind of pokes him a little bit and says, hey, uh, you know, we worship here on this mountain. You guys worship in Jerusalem. And so what she's essentially trying to do is get into this argument with Jesus and saying, our mountain is more legitimate than your mountain. You guys don't worship at the right place. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. What he essentially says to her in so many words is, oh, dear woman, you don't know what you're talking about. He, he does say, you know what, uh, the Jewish people have the right understanding of the, the, the writings of, of God, but then he doesn't leave it there. He says, but there's going to come a day when you're not going to worship either, and actually he says that day is already starting. He says, 
you're not going to worship either on this mountain that he was at right at that moment with the Samaritan woman, nor is, is anyone going to worship on the mountain in Jerusalem. What he basically is saying is this whole contention and this whole argument about where the right place to worship is, is irrelevant because one greater than the temple was there in their midst, in her midst. And that, of course, was himself. And, you know, Jesus elsewhere says that, that someone greater than the temple was standing right before them. So what Jesus is saying is all of God's true worshipers will one day worship in spirit and truth, and it's not going to be confined to a physical location. It's not going to be Mount Gerizim. It's not going to be Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. It's not going to matter. It's not going to be confined to geographical location because he was that true temple. And as we're going to look here in another few seconds, Jesus says, listen, wherever, wherever two or three people are gathered together in my name, I'm there with them in their midst. And since I'm the temple, you can take that around with you wherever you go. So, uh, again, so in other words, what Jesus is saying is location doesn't matter. God cannot be contained to physical space, which is why when you come to the book of Acts, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 is speaking to the Jewish leaders and check out what he says in Acts chapter 7 verse 48. The most high does not dwell in temples made with hands. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And he says, you know, as the prophets say, you know, everything is my throne. The whole earth is my footstool. Everything belongs to me. He says, how could you build me a house? Like, I'm the one who made it all. So, like, I can't be just confined to things that humans make. Now, interestingly, what happens to Stephen a few verses later, I'm not implying that this is the only reason this happened, but a few verses later, the Jewish leaders picked up rocks and they stoned him to death because, among other things, he was threatening their understanding of sacred space of the temple. I mean, all of life revolved around, in the Jewish thinking, all of life revolved around the temple. And so, uh, of course, this is after Jesus died, so um, the, the veil was torn in two. And again, that's pretty significant right then and there. Okay, there's no distinction now. This is all opened up to you. You're not supposed to have this uh, attitude about this place being more important than any other place. So uh, it's no wonder that in the New Testament, in the, with the New Testament church in the book of Acts, where are they meeting? Where are the people meeting when they are, quote-unquote, worshiping God? They're meeting in homes. They're meeting by the riverside. They are wherever they go. Now, of course, there was times where they went to the temple when the temple was still standing. But uh, they're, they're just they're recognizing that, that God is not confined to physical space. But wherever they are, again, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul, when he writes about the temple during the time, by the way, when the temple was still standing in Jerusalem, Paul actually identifies, he he points to the temple being three things. Number one, according to the book of Hebrews, which again, seems to have been written before the temple in Jerusalem fell. Number one, for Paul, the temple, the sanctuary, is something that is up in heaven. So it's very clear that there is a temple in heaven, and Jesus, who has resurrected and gone back up into heaven, is there um, mediating on our behalf in that temple in heaven. Secondly, according to Paul, the temple is the body of believers, that is, the church, not the church building, because when we say church, a lot of times we mean a building. What he means, what he what he says is that we as the body of Christ, as the body of believers, as the people who are in fellowship, we are the temple. And then lastly, he also references the individual believer's body being the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So again, sanctuary in heaven, number one, 
body of believers as individuals, I should say, and then the corporate body of followers of Jesus are the temple. Nowhere does Paul transfer sacredness from the earthly temple to some physical location anywhere else on earth. He doesn't say the synagogue is sacred space. He doesn't say a basilica is a sacred space. Of course, those didn't exist in his day. But nowhere does Paul uh, reference any other physical space as being the temple. Um, and he doesn't transfer it to anything else other than the, you know, the corporate group of believers and the individual body of the believer. So, you know, Peter agrees with this. First Peter chapter two, he says, we are living stones, speaking of the believers being built up into a spiritual house. And he says a holy priesthood. So he's like saying, listen, we're the priests, we're the temple, we are the house of God. So uh, again, nowhere do we see in the trajectory of Scripture from Jesus on do we see any significance placed on physical space, physical space other than physical space in heaven. And I think that probably has to do with the fact that Jesus is there, again, as the better temple. Um so, you know, that can get into all other sorts of theological questions that maybe you as a Seventh-day Adventist might have about a sanctuary being in heaven. Paul is very clear there is a sanctuary in heaven, that Jesus is doing work up there. But anyway, the point, the relevant point that we're trying to make here is, according to Scripture, this again, this is just according to Scripture. You can bring me quotes from your favorite author, and maybe we'll tackle a little bit of those here in a minute. But according to Scripture... There is not an equivalence today of the Old Testament temple. There is not a room that one goes to, and uh, there God's presence is felt to a greater degree. In fact, Jesus, I'm just thinking of this, Matthew 24, and he says, there will some who come to you and say, look, he is in this room, and look, he is in that room. And he says, don't be deceived. Now, am I uh, maybe taking that? A different direction than what he's saying? Maybe, maybe not. But the point is, nowhere do we see the New Testament. And this is not just like a New Testament, Old Testament thing. This is not like, oh, you know, we're going to throw out ideas just because the New Testament doesn't say it. We're just following the trajectory of Scripture. No sacred space in Eden originally. No sacred space in Eden restored. No sacred sp- space in the New Testament Sacred space was very much a unique phenomenon from Moses to Jesus, and that was about it. So um, so now you're asking the question, so what? What, what? What's the big deal? Why are we talking about all this? Uh, why am I talking about this? Why am I preaching uh, this sermon? Why, why, what, what, why is this such an important topic? Well, I think if I can, there are two critically important ideas as to why I think we need to recognize that there is not the equivalence of the Old Testament temple today. Number one, there are very important missional implications for uh, our understanding of sacred space and temple transference and so forth. Um, It just so happens that we live in a day and an age when there is already a fairly high weariness from unchurched people towards church buildings anyway. I remember uh, the first time I was ever like confronted with this idea, and this was a long time ago. I'm getting very old. This was back in 2001. So we're going back almost 20 years, and the scary thing is that I was in college almost 20 years ago. Actually, I, yeah, almost 20 years ago I was in college, so I'm getting really, really old. Oh, man. Uh, anyway, I spent a year living in Scotland. I was doing some work there for the church, and it was the first time I'd ever encountered this idea that uh, church buildings were not as highly valued anymore in more secular societies because there was a building, an old Church of Scotland, just down the road from where I lived in my flat in Perth, Scotland. 
and uh, it had been converted into a an apartment building. And I was just so scandalized by that. I was like, oh my goodness, how could that be? And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of the very first indication in my mind that things were changing. And uh, again, there's not a high regard for showing up to a building anymore by unchurched people. And in fact, it can be a turnoff to some degree, uh, you know, to, to drive by a church and, you know, we mutter things under our breath and so forth. Uh, so there's, there, however, there's, there does seem, and so there does seem to be a greater openness and excitement about sitting around a living room, having conversations about scripture rather than going to a sterile and impersonal environment to quote unquote worship God. Um, and, and, you know, meeting in a home is not a stop along the way to making sure we get people people into a devoted space that we call sacred. Um, meeting in a home or a public space is less threatening, lends itself to greater relational connection. Um, I mean, that's just that's just the reality today. So if we get in this mindset that we have to have this building, it it kind of always sits there in the back of our minds and and sort of handicaps us with what we can do missionally and, you know, evangelistically. If we're so focused on getting people into our building or thinking that the building is so significant. By the way, it's also cheaper. Um, I mean, think of all the money, the time, the money, the energy we spend on maintaining our building money and time and energy that we could use for more productive purposes of reaching our neighbors and, you know, sharing the gospel with them and, and providing loving acts of service to those that were incarnating the gospel too. Uh, so all of the time and energy and, and money we spend. Um, I'm not sure that it is the best stewardship. You say, well, what about the Old Testament? All the gold that they used, you know, um, Solomon in, in building the temple eventually. And I would say, yeah, that's cool. Good, you know, good for Solomon. But uh, again, that was a specific time in a specific place that was, uh, you know, through 3,000 years ago now, and, and it's a different context, and there was uh, other, uh, m- you know, motives and other um, agendas that that they had in those days, and even God had a, a, uh, a plan in place that he was trying to reveal realities that he, he fully revealed at the cross, and so now he doesn't need those buildings anymore with all the elaborate stuff to, to help people understand his character. Um, he has people who have internalized those realities and who are living out, hopefully, the sacredness of, of God's glory and his, his love and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and just imagine, and my friend Jared Thomas, when he was on the show a few months ago, maybe now, uh, he, he kind of alluded to it. He maybe even explicitly said it. I don't remember now. But um, imagine if we insisted, as some do, that, every church needed a building. I mean, how much does that handicap our missional ability in a big city like New York City? I mean, with all the millions of people that live there, with all of the exorbitant real estate costs that happen in places like that, I mean, to expect every church every group of believers to have to have a devoted sacred space that is incredibly cost ineffective. And so we're just handicapping ourselves missionally. If we insist that we need to have a building that's devoted only to meetings for the quote unquote worship of God. So just missionally, it doesn't make sense to me to insist. Now, again, I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying prayerfully think about the means that God has blessed you with and the resources and the time and the energy. Think prayerfully about 
the people you're trying to reach. If you are trying to reach people who are used to having a building, have a building. If you are trying to reach people and you live in an area that they are very suspicious of churches with big buildings, and let me tell you, a lot of people are very suspicious, uh, secular, unchurched people, they're very suspicious about all of the money that Christians spend on building their buildings up. So if that's a relevant concern, maybe you don't need a building. So that's number one, missionally. Number two, I would just say what it does to our discipleship when we insist that there is this sacred space that has apparently greater importance and significance than what takes place outside of that sacred space, so-called sacred space. So I'm going to uh, be bad here and refer back to a movie that I watched in my younger years when I was a little more loose, shall we say, with my entertainment practices. And uh, it just illustrates kind of what I'm getting at. Uh, There was a classic movie called Robin Hood Men in Tights. And I apologize if this is stirring up some fleshly, uh, you know, concerns in, in, in you because of a former life or whatever. But anyway, I'm not promoting the movie. I'm just simply using it as an illustration. Some of you have seen it. Uh, I'm not telling you to go see it if you haven't seen it. But anyway, to make a long story short, there's a a scene in that movie that's my favorite scene in the whole movie. In fact, I don't remember anything else from the movie, but for some reason this thing stand out. Again, this is probably like, again, I'm getting old, like 25 years ago I watched it. Um, But there's a scene where uh, the person playing Robin Hood comes to this bridge and uh, it's a bridge over this little, 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 little tiny stream. And there is a keeper of that bridge who is seeking to keep Robin out of his territory. And uh, he really doesn't want to, like, you know, be difficult. And he, he, you know, would rather just have Robin go by. And he says, you're going to have to, and I may be misremembering all the details, but he says, you know, you have to pay me money or whatever. And Robin's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, he says, you know, I hate to be difficult, but this is what I just, I'm supposed to do. And so Robin basically says, well, I'm going to, you know, let's fight over it. This is, is, by the way, a a comedic version of Robin Hood for those who have not seen it. And um, he he says, okay, well, let's fight over it. Let's, Let's have a sword fight. And the other dude is like this huge, 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 huge guy and, uh, you know, very strong. And it it doesn't look like a very optimistic match for Robin. But um, so he's there and he's like, okay, I'm going to fight you. And Dave Chappelle, funny Dave Chappelle, who's Robin's friend, Achu, he comes by. He's like, whoa, 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 Robin, Robin. You're like, you know, think about this, bro. He's like, why, why would you do this? And Dave Chappelle goes down to the stream next to the bridge and he jumps to the other side. And of course the guard is like not concerned about that. All he has to do is protect the bridge. And uh, Dave Chappelle's like, Robin, look at this. And he just jumps back and forth, back and forth, back and forth from one side to the other. And he goes, look at me. I'm on one side of the river i'm on the other side of the river i'm on the east side i'm on the west side and he's just trying to show uh robin that he doesn't need to make a big deal about this like don't fight the battle just go around and go to the other side without any uh concern now why do i say this i simply say this because we have i'm gonna use a big word here okay you can look it up if you don't know it made a huge bifurcation, a huge, what I would call a false dichotomy between two sides of a doorway. We have made what takes place inside that doorway more important than what takes place outside that doorway, and yet they're literally separated by inches, and I, I know you may think, well, you're overstating this, but I've heard people say that, oh, I don't need to act any, 
I don't need to act well right now because I'm not in church. And so what we do is we place more significance on what we do inside that room than what we do outside that room. And we we require or we expect better behavior in there than outside that room. So what does this do to our discipleship? It gives us inevitably, whether it is uh, consciously processed or not, this belief that stuff that takes place in that room, just again, a few inches away, is more important than stuff that takes place outside of that room. And so we need to act better in that room. We need to be more well-behaved in that room. As long as we show up into that room and we do our thing, we're good. As soon as we leave that room, you know, what our behavior is not as important, so we aren't as, you know, thoughtful with it. So um, if, if the sanctuary... If, if we are the sanctuary, if we are the sacred space, we take around the presence of Jesus wherever we go. And so it heightens the significance of everything we do. Everything we do is an act of worship. It's not confined to this room that we go to once a week. We are in the presence of God wherever we go if we are the temple of God, if our bodies are the temple of God. And so... It helps us recognize that all of life demands consecration, devotion. All of life, we are seeking to show the sacredness with which we we conduct ourselves. So those are those are the two reasons why I think this is so important. Um, now we're, I mean, we've we've gone on long here, and I I I, I think I'm tempted to just kind of play the devil's advocate here a little bit um, and ask, you know, why Why do we make a big deal about this? Uh, uh, that is, why do others insist that we devote specific space to the worship of God as though God's presence was there to a greater degree than in other places or God's presence was there completely and it's absent in other places? Um, there's a long history of this and we won't go into all of it. Basically, just to give a bird's eye view, for the first two or three hundred years within Christianity, there was no sacred space uh, around the time of Constantine, which is ironic if you're a Seventh-day Adventist because he's no friend of Seventh-day Adventists in our understanding. He's the one who uh, kind of codifies, if you will, the use of sacred space, so-called sacred space. Uh, you know, he sets up basilicas and temples. Interestingly, those temples were uh, first uh, kind of constructed as uh, places of memorial over uh, the tombs of the saints, and they were there to conduct worship over the tombs of the saints. So, I mean, that's kind of an interesting connection itself. Uh, it's kind of styled off of the Old Testament sanctuary, as well as the pagan, you know, Greek temples, uh, temple worship. Uh, so, you know, along about the year 300, Christians start constructing these big temples, and we see this distinction, of course, between the priesthood and uh, the lay people. So everything is becoming more, again, going back to that that kind of experience with, with Israel, like this mediation between God and, and, and God's people. Instead of going directly to God, instead of recognizing that we all carry around the presence of God if we're going in his name, there is now this this separation that takes place. There's there's now priests that arise again that are supposed to mediate between God and and his and his people. Um, there's you know buildings again where God is contained, and I have to go to that building in order to be in the presence of God. And again, these things are these things. I don't think are what what God was pointing towards in um, in the life of Jesus. So um, I think that's what's going on. I think today. Uh, objections that are raised is because there is, and I and I understand the concern. Um, there does seem to be a sense that if we don't have devoted space that is is sacred, that something will be lost when it comes to respect for God. Like if we don't have the space that needs that requires so called reverence, then people won't um, have as much. 
uh, respect for God. Uh, we won't take uh, God as serious as as we would if we had those sacred spaces. And I would simply say this. Um, first of all, the New Testament church didn't have that attitude. They seem to be doing all right. Uh, in, in the earth made new, we're not going to have that problem. Um, we're not going to have to have uh, that specific place of worship. Um, and I would just say as well, like, on a practical level, I don't observe that. Now, it certainly can be uh, a factor, but um, let's not let's not uh, you know just rely on space to um, encourage a respect for God. Uh, let's like you, you know we've had sacred space for how long, and and, and you know so called sacred space. I keep having to say that, but we've had uh, this devoted space for how long within Christianity and and it hasn't gotten us to any closer you know uh, any closer in our our uh, experience with God than than uh, the New Testament church so I don't know if that's necessarily a legitimate argument um, it just means that we as a matter of fact I would argue that it probably has the opposite effect again because uh, if we think that, uh, this is the place that where we, where we go to respect God. Well, what does that mean for the times I'm in my house and I'm in my shower, or I'm at the grocery store? It's like, am I not supposed to respect God there? And again, is God limited to like a geographical location? Uh, I just don't know that. Um, lastly, and I know we're going on here. Thanks for sticking with me, guys. Um, lastly, there are these quotations from an author that I respect greatly. And uh, admittedly, this is the single fly in the ointment that's preventing me from just going, you know, full bore with this idea is that I, I am, you know, I have a little pause because of some counsel from uh, an author I respect greatly. Um, there's a couple of different factors here, uh, and this is what will always come up when I speak of these things with my fellow Seventh-day Adventists who uh, have a, 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 a concern about this type of sentiment. And that is this uh, dear friend of ours who lived 120 years ago or so, she says in a few places that whenever a church, a new church is established, there needs to be a building that is raised up. And then she says elsewhere that, you know, we should have a, she has, uh, says in a number of other places that we should have devoted space to the worship of God and we should learn from the Old Testament sanctuary. And uh, that's how we should act in the modern, you know, contemporary church building. Um, first of all, the one about having churches, newly established churches, having buildings, to me, that one is very easy. And it's simply this. Um, the reason she said that was important is because when that was written, our church was very, very, very much in its infancy. Nobody knew who Seventh-day Adventists were. Uh, and we didn't have a lot of congregations in different places. And so the actual reason she says that a new church must raise funds and raise up a building is because she says Otherwise, the other surrounding churches will say, see these people, whoever they are, they're not really serious about this work because they don't even have a building. And so what she's basically arguing is that in order to, to communicate that we plan to have a long-term mission in that area, we need to actually raise up a church building so that those who might think about joining our church don't get all worried that, hey, this people are coming now, but who knows if they're going to be around next week. So that's, that's, that's how I understand that specific counsel. And I'm not, it's not a stretch whatsoever because it's clearly in there. Um, and she says, yeah, the, the other pastors from the other churches will say, hey, these people don't even have a church building. How serious can they be? Why would you join them? And so she's basically saying for missional purposes— so that people know we're serious, we need to have buildings. Now, I would argue that the missional context is different today. Again, um, 
people don't worry about that. In fact, having a church building may be more of a liability in people's minds, again, as they think about how the associations with church buildings um, kind of give them a negative opinion. So that's that. The other one, and then, and then there's this big, long section in a book called Testimonies for the Church. I can't remember what volume it is, maybe four, maybe five. Um, this fairly long passage that seems to be the most exhaustive in her treatment of this Um where she's very, very clear, we need to be reverent in the house of God. It is the house of God, and we need to learn from the Old Testament sanctuary. I am still studying that uh, passage, but I would say some preliminary thoughts is, number one, wherever this passage is quoted, it is quoted without any historical context, wherever it's published. We don't know to whom it was written. We don't know. I don't. I have to go back and check, but I'm pretty sure we don't even have it listed when it was written originally. So we have no historical context. We don't know, again, if it was written to a specific person, a specific time, a specific place. For all we know, the person that she could have been writing to uh, was just this really disrespectful, irreverent, you know, uh, person or a group of people that were just teaching some really crazy ideas. So we don't know the historical context of this quote. And uh, that's almost as though we can't really ground ourselves in it if we don't know why she wrote it or to whom she wrote it. Um, so that's what I would say about that. And beyond that, I would just say, you know what? I'm putting that one on a shelf. And I think that's safe to do because this author herself says, study the Bible for yourself. Don't always be saying, hey, Sister White says this, Sister White says that. Like, go to the scriptures yourself. We are not to interpret scriptures through any human being. We can gain insight from those other human beings. And to be sure, I'm not at all arguing that we we uh, take our interpretations and run with them even when this particular author clearly, unequivocally contradicts what we know, uh, what we think to be true. That's not all what I'm arguing, but I am just saying, like, especially with issues that are um, not... Uh, unequivocal in in her body of writings. Um, we want to make sure that we take what is clear and interpret other things that may not be as clear rather than taking things that are not as clear and interpreting the clear things through those unclear ideas. Does that make sense? Hopefully I'm, I'm trying to dance around this. Considering that uh, some of you listening are not Seventh-day Adventists, some of you are not Christians, some of you are uh, Seventh-day Adventists, but you don't care about this author, some of you are Seventh-day Adventists and you really care about this author, considering that I really care about this author, but at the same time I know that we have to uh, study what she says historically. So anyway, I'm just doing a lot of gymnastics here, I know. But the point is, uh, I just don't think that there's enough there's enough of 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 a bot. There's not a big enough body of material to say conclusively that um, what's what seems to be clear in Scripture is not actually clear because she says something else. Okay, does that make sense? You can write to me about this. But anyway, I hope what we what I talked about my sermon, my sixty minute sermon. I'm looking now as I finish up here. I hope it was clear. I hope it was helpful. Um, again, I'm not saying don't have a building. I'm not saying have a building. I'm just saying, uh, look at your context, look at your, uh, situation. If it's helpful, if it's not helpful, have one, don't have one. But certainly I would definitely say don't, um, insist that others can't, that others have to have one, I should say. And, uh, don't have this perspective that, only quote unquote holy things, I'm putting that in air quotes, can happen in that space and only that space is holy. Um, and recognize that, I mean, reverence is a whole other topic. Even if I did grant the premise that 
a specific room was more important and holy and sanctified than another room. You know, what does it mean to be reverent? That's a whole other topic. Uh, but anyway, hopefully this is helpful to you. It wasn't more confusing than anything. But uh, thanks for listening, and we'll look forward to having you next week to 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 uh, to answer my question in the beginning. Has God left the building? I am not sure that he was ever in the building to begin with. That is any more than any more or any less than any other place uh, in this era now. So thank you for listening. Have a good week. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Mission Lab. Our theme song is Portland Hike by Tiny Music. Additional editing by Chris Ogay. Follow us on Twitter at MLabPodcast. Podcast.